<clears throat> to start church, uh, if I can read to you, at least to me, some of the greatest words in romantic literature. Romeo, save me. I've been feeling so alone. I keep waiting for you, but you never come. You guys know the word. Is this in my head? I don't know what to think. He knelt on the ground and pulled out a ring and said, don't say, don't say, don't say. Now, I do not care what age you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care how sick of, of, of the fact of how much we are talking about Taylor Swift. I'm a bit over her as a Swifty myself. I don't care that she's a psyop for Biden. I don't care about any of that. <laughs> Nonetheless, I'm pretty sure as I had to stop you that we all know the rest of those lyrics, don't we? The moment in Taylor's love song when the romance and the love story shift both in narrative but also in tone change and our Queen Taylor bursts out into a new octave, marry me, Juliet, you'll never have to. <laughs> this key change, this key change is known as, actually, does anybody here in the music industry know what this key chain is known as? An octave change? Close. It has an official name. You're correct. It has an official name. It is called the truck driver's gear change. Has anybody heard that? The truck driver's gear change is a modulation near the end of a song shifting upwards by some relatively small pitch to bring the song to its climax. Now, as I've said, it's been used by countless artists as a simple tool to, to, to move you, to rock you, to sway you, to lead you, to change you to your emotions. It wants to change your longing and your senses and your joy. But here's the thing. Everyone in the music industry knows it's a tired technique. It is a tired technique. Sorry, Taylor. It's tired. It's, over, it's, it's over, uh, an overlooked unartistic, mechanical function, and it is a discredited trope. But don't get me wrong, we all eat it up. I mean, it sounds good, but, we all, but it's a discredited trope. Now, how much in our lives are we fooled into believing are making us whole and are actually a truck driver's gear change? Allowing our hearts to settle for lesser glories. How much in our life do we believe is bringing change, real eternal change, uh, real joy, real glory, and is actually a discredited trope? What I love about our scriptures for today that's open before you from 1 Thessalonians is it perhaps brings surprising conclusions to those questions. And what's even more surprising is it doesn't stem from some apostolic manifesto or, or spiritual treaty. We won't be reading from some supernatural narrative with miracles and angels. It doesn't even come from Paul instructing his church in the ways of behavior and belief. It's only a few small verses. It is a small moment of nakedness and vulnerability and desperation. Where Paul, the author and church planner, puts his beating heart in the palms of his church. So we're going to read that together now. Verse 17 of chapter 2. It says, but as for us. But as for us. Paul just got done going off about the marks of a model church and a model faith and a model pastor. And for the last two chapters, he goes from the macro to the micro in just a single 
sentence. Do not let this slip by. Here he goes. But as for us, but as for us, your pastors and planters, brothers and sisters, after we were forced to leave you for a short time in person and in heart, we greatly desired to make every effort to return and see you face to face. There it is. No discredited trope, no mechanical octave change, but a bloodied, beating heart. Paul perfectly and emotionally captures in a glimpse the entire whole relational spectrum of how the church is to interact and interchange and relate and see and behold and encounter and long for. And Paul is referring to in his letter is just that, a reason for a letter and not face to face. As many know, Acts 17 tells us that Paul had gone to Thessalonica where this church was located and planted. And from that mission trip, tons of people got saved, converted, baptized. It was a revolution. They all started like throwing their secular music away. (laughs) Do people still do that when they get saved? Goodbye, Metallica. They all started reading John Mark Comer books. (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Am I? Okay. This is what was happening. But all of this commotion and Paul's presence resulted in what seemed to be another imminent riot. Wherever Paul went, there was a riot. So to protect the mission and his companions and these like freshly baked converts, Paul escapes under the cover of night. And that departure from this church, from his people, dude, it killed him. It killed him. Sadly, our CSB translation doesn't do the language justice. In my opinion, ESV does it better, as verse 17 has far more weight to it, where it says, brothers and sisters, but since we were torn away from you, torn away from you. If that's not in your Bible, get out a Sharpie and write it in there. The phrase torn away from you, church, listen, it is so special, and it is so graphic, extremely graphic, This is the only New Testament occurrence of it. What's wild is many commentators will suggest or even lighten the language here because they say it's too uncomfortable. It's too uncomfortable. His desperation for his spiritual family raises eyebrows, and here's why. Paul's extreme diction of love lost between spiritual family brings this idea of, I have lost my shelter, is what he's saying. I have lost my safe space. And he goes, I am deserted without you, is what he is crying out over and over through a storm of tears. But if that wasn't enough, Paul is trying to fit like every familiar analogy he could in these couple of verses. So he says, brothers and sisters, and then this tearing away is interpreted as to be orphaned by either a loss of a parent or the loss of a child. It's to bereave wholly that who you love the most. So essentially life-altering grief in his absence away from his spiritual family. It's a feeling you want no one to experience. Such love compounded on itself to the highest peak of love, just to lose it. Some here can relate to that tearing this morning. But here is where I want to ramp up our discomfort because the reality are the results that what type of love or commitment and investment, that this is what we are to possess as a spiritual family. This type of love and description is to be our Christianly 
reality for the person beside you. This is no new spiritual insight, collective church, or fresh revelation. It's pretty basic. I'm basically regurgitating what Pastor Ryan has been saying the last few weeks, that Paul is incomplete without his spiritual family. Paul expresses his love so heavily because he is fearful, and please hear me on this, he is fearful that his absence is assumed as an expression of his lack of love for that church. Now, if we could switch gears here for just a moment. Pastor Ryan, when assigning these verses that I would be teaching, was kind enough to give me these particular verses because he knows the synergy that exists between my longing for collective and Paul's for the church in Thessalonica. And it's true. Uh, For this moment, for who we are as a church, I believe and I hope to resonate with the bereavement and longing that Paul is expressing. Now, please, I, I really don't want to make this about me, puke nation. That's not what I'm trying to do right now at all. But I do want to make this about the moment of what the Lord is doing in us here and now, if I could, to speak with you about my familial love as Paul did to his church. When I left this community on June 3rd, 2019, I went to a desert of heart as I went to a desert of location, Phoenix, Arizona. Dude, it sucks there. Two stars, I do not recommend, Phoenix, Arizona. And for 10 months, after 20 years of pastoral ministry, I worked at a metal shop from 5 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day. We weren't allowed to talk to the other people who were on your right or left as you were shaping metal. They weren't allowed. You had to wear headphones. And so I just listened to sermons and worship all freaking day. And I was uh, left to really bereave holy as I wasn't speaking to anybody other than the Spirit of God. I was just there left to bereave. And so as I was shaping steel, the Spirit of God was shaping me, and I prayed endlessly, endlessly to return. It was the most, ex- most painful experience of my life. So these words in verse 17 where it says, we greatly desired and made every effort to return. In verse 17. Do you know what Paul is saying here? This is one of the only times where Paul uses the word lust positively. Paul lusted after a reunion. And this is why commentators are like, They try and massage it here. But I get it. I get it. I lusted to return to this church. And here it is. Answered prayer unfolding before us. Church, let's get dirty for a second. There are some people here who were greatly hurt by my leaving four years ago. That tears me apart. Tears me. Like Paul, my hope isn't an assumption that it was done out of a loveless decision, my leaving. leaving. And even though I didn't write the story of my leaving, I am elated that the Lord has written this chapter in now. As well, there are people who are hurt or cautious and unwanting with my coming back. In all honesty, this tears me too. But it doesn't hinder me. It does not hinder me or doubt my calling. Church, I'm at a place with Jesus where I am no longer striving to prove my worth or my calling to you, to the Lord, to my family, or to myself. 
what is happening now is a work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, there are people right now who are potentially concerned that I might leave again. Fearful of getting this First Thessalonians 2 level of closeness between pastor and parishioner. I understand that. I get that. I, and here's the truth. I can't control any of that. But don't let fear of the unknown then hinder what we're called to do now. To love one another Christianly is binding and risky and without reservation. Whether one leaves or stays or hurts or helps or binds or breaks does not determine who or how we are to love. Please know, Collective Church, whether you were here then or not, and please hear me on this. My hope and my aim as your pastor is to seek to love you in the ways that our chief shepherd Jesus has. Will I fail at that? Oh, mama, yes. But it is one of my biggest hopes each and every day, my endeavor to offer to you my bloodied, beating heart. And as I've said, Paul's message is much broader than planter to parishioner. Paul's hope as his mind is that this form of spiritual family bond is reciprocal, not only between clergy and congregate, but between congregate and congregant. Church, the giving over of our whole hearts in love is what is asked of us. It is what is asked of us. Great investment comes with great risk. Let's remember, was it the great encouragement? Was it the great suggestion? No, it was the great commandment from our Lord in the book of Matthew. Let me read it to us. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself and all the prophets and the law hang on these two commandments. Church, all of scripture, like a weighty door, hangs on the two hinges of giving our heart to God and giving our heart to one another, giving our heart to the person right next to you. If you've given your heart to Jesus, have you yet to give your heart to this family? Or is our heart divided? Here's the thing. This kind of wholehearted love for God and one another is possible. It's possible. How do I know that? Because we're Angelinos. <laughs> we give our whole heart to everything. You should see the way I talk about burritos. It is really unhelpful and unhealthy. We give our whole heart to everything. Dude, we are the most devoted to our dreams than any other citizen in the world. We are so wholehearted to our crushes, to our phones, to our follower count, to our craft, and many other truck driver gear changes. So again, it's possible the issue is, if our whole heart is to be given to Christ and this family, then something in our life must decrease. You see, this is the remedy of, to a divided heart. See, what did John the Baptist say? God must increase, Jesus must increase, and we must increase. No, Christ must increase his priorities, his purposes, his people, his plan, his truth for our sexuality, his truth for our politics, his truth for our engagement, his truth for our financial engagement. That all must increase as we must decrease. This is why Jesus, we said we cannot have two masters because the heart is a monogamous organ. So if that's 
the solution, then what's the method? Honestly, simply, it would probably just be, if you don't give, start with $1. Start to increase something. What would be another remedy, a method, or solution? How about if you are not engaging in the weekly Bible passage, try reading one verse this week. That's it. Try reading one verse. If you have not yet tried increasing the Lord and us decreasing, today come and raise your hands one time. Come to the carpets one time. The first step principle. Has anybody heard of that? The first step principle. Just starting to put ourselves on the track towards allowing those small moments of him to increase and us to decrease. I'll say this. Once you start to trade and to make that room for God and one another, despite the risk, nothing else satisfies If you're not self-crucifying or martyred to lesser loves, dare I say that you have not yet tasted and seen. And we'll know this increasing is happening when our hearts for one another start to look like, and what did Pastor Ryan lay out these last couple few weeks? It's going to be presence over brief encounters. It's going to be spiritual family over social engagements. Paul is demonstrating that when we become a part of the church, we commit to a people and not to simply an experience. I mean, side note, actually, if we could, I'm just going to go off here for a second. It has been beat to death that Christianity isn't a religion, but relationships. That is so stupid. That is so wrong on multiple levels. A, there is nothing wrong with the word religion. It means we are obligated to something. We are bound to something. That's not a bad thing. Something more than our elves, more than ourselves. And then B, it's not, you know, it's not religion, it's relationship. No, it's relationships. It's relationships. Oh, how haunting, how haunting it is that church engagement is practiced simply as a commitment to more of a set of personal preferences. As if the church was our creation. Church, take this with you into your weekly Bible passage in your discipleship groups this week. Take this with you. If we want to know if our heart is divided, it's bound up in the word if. It's bound up in the word if. God, I will serve you if. God, I will be happy if. God, I will be happy in my relationships, my singleness, my parenting if. God, I will financially give if. I will love this church if. If the music styles a certain way, if collective possesses a a particular vibe, if the size dynamics meet my standards, or if we're in the middle right now, let's just talk about what we're in the middle of right now. I will love wholeheartedly this spiritual family and allow you to increase, Lord, if a particular preacher is behind the pulpit. I'll participate so as long as as Ryan never leaves? Come on. So as long as I get to be in leadership, I'll invest as long as the new incoming pastor is a certain ethnicity, a certain intellect, a certain style. I'll give my whole heart so as long as I'm not challenged or corrected or disappointed. Imagine, church, if we were as committed to one another as we were our preferences. I don't see any of that in our scriptures for today or anywhere in the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. Our preferences can be important, but they are not sacred. They are not laws. Wholehearted love is the law. Oftentimes, 
those preferences need to be bound to the horns of the altar, as the book of Psalms says. We love Paul's beating heart, but to open our chest in mutuality is a different sort of self-crucification. Church, here's one of the jawbreakers of the day. In those cases of giving our heart to one another is dependent on our preferences being met, then hear gently and hear this firmly, then the object of our worship is not Jesus but ourselves. May we never deify our preferences as a stipulation to engage or risk for the church. This church, as Paul demonstrates so powerfully, is what it means to be a blood-bound family. And if we hear these words and we're tempted to think, well, that's Paul, that's ancient writing. Somebody thinking right now, that's hyperbolic. That's dramatic language. That's poetry. That's, that's leftover scriptures. Or if you're even tempted to think that about me, Casey, you're only in love with the church that used to be. It's just not true. It's not true. A shepherd doesn't choose his sheep. Here's the thing. If we're tempted to think that about Paul to know if this is the kind of love that is real or purposed or has the ability to change or complete us, here's what I would say, collective church. Follow the evidence. If we think this is potentially hyperbolic, follow the evidence. Paul, an instrument of the Holy Spirit, changed the world. Besides Christ himself, there is nobody with this level of seismic shift. And what was the secret sauce? What was the special ingredient to his Krabby Patty? What was it? Paul would say it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Exactly, exactly. Paul loved the church as she was and is. Jesus loves the church as she was and is. Because this is how God loves us with no prepositions, no strings, no prerequisites. I love how much of the gospels are these small narrative moments of Jesus loving people with great risk and with whole heart. I love when Jesus he hears about John the Baptist, or he hears about Lazarus, and he goes to a shadowed corner and he weeps. I love hearing about Jesus, who unabashedly loves little stranger kids coming up to him and getting snot all over his knees and pulling on his robe. <laughs> he just goes for it. I love how much Jesus just embraces and washes his enemy's feet. I love how Jesus touches the unclean and the sick. I love how Jesus disciples those who will abandon him, who will reject him, who will hurt him. I love how Jesus forgives as he's being tortured. Church, let me remind you so tenderly this morning what Puritan Thomas Goodwin described in our wholehearted Jesus. That being that Christ is love covered over in flesh. In other words, may we not add variants and exceptions to his love. He doesn't just love, he is love. There are no preferences or ifs with Christ's love towards you, and I hope that we believe that this morning. One British author in his novel, uh, the book's called The Course of Love, has a beautiful reflection on the essence of what we're talking about, where a woman asks her lover, would you love me if I had a hideous deformity on my face? And then the internal monologue sort of carries this away saying this. The yearning is that it would be a yes, an answer that would place love above the mundane surfaces, simply because you are you. That you would be loved, stripped of external assets, the desires to be loved if I lose everything, leaving nothing but me. And it finishes with this. Do you love me enough? To be weak with you. Do you love me enough to be weak with you? 
What a beautiful reflection of what can be found in Christ. Church, LA loves us because it wants us to be strong for it. Jesus loves us for our weakness. Church, does this bring you to worship this morning? Does this inspire you to love those next to you as Paul loved those in Thessalonica? Church, do we believe we are loved for our weaknesses? Church, do we love each other here for their weaknesses? Church, do you find relief in what theologians said, that you were loved ferociously by God despite prior knowledge of all of your worst moments? I don't know who this is for here this morning, but Christ's love for you doesn't shake if you looked at pornography this week or read your Bible. Christ's love for you does not fold if you talk trash about somebody this week or sang hymns till dawn. Christ's love for you or his faithfulness towards you does not crumble because yours this week did for him. There are no preferences, strings, or ifs with Christ's love for you today. And this is the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, that his love is inseparable from you no matter our degree in return. Jesus knew the whole power of a whole heart. Paul knew the whole power of a rightly divided heart. But do we? Here's the most alarming and sobering news. If we don't, the devil does. Look at verse 18. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. But Satan hindered us. This is the third opposition in this chapter alone we see. Opposition from the state, 1 Thessalonians 2.2. Opposition from society, 1 Thessalonians 2.14. And now opposition from Satan. Again, here's the most sobering reality, collective church. Satan attaches far more importance to our commitment and communion than we do. Satan uses and sees the power of a church interwoven in biblically committed love, and he is terrified of it. He is terrified of it. Terrified of what? Terrified for your growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord that you would experience. Horrified of spiritual maturity that you will gain. Mortified of men and women you will influence for the kingdom of light. Petrified of freedom you will receive in a rightly ordered heart. He is terrified. So what does Satan plan on doing to stop collective church? Well, one of the countermeasures an ancient army would take against the opposition was dig this massive trench to prevent enemy troops from the other side coming onto their side. They would literally break up the roads between them. It was an impossible impasse. This is what the meaning of the word hindered is. He wants to hinder us. So are we awake to the fact this morning that our gathering in our hearts are under attack. There are trenches being made. Trenches being made between Ryan and Casey? What? Trenches being made between collective that was here and collective that is here now and then? What? Lord, he wants us. Lord, Lord, Lord. this devil wants us attracted and attached to truck driver gear changes and discredited tropes. Distracted by certain preachers and not the preaching. Distracted by the church according to me and not according to God's word. Distracted against one another, not the devil himself, to our our dividing politics or truths and not our unity in Christ. Satan agrees with theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, the Christ in my heart is weaker than the Christ in your heart. 
That's an inverted way of saying the gospel shared between us is stronger than me sharing it to myself. The gospel is meant to be heard and shared and applied. The gospel effects are meant to be seen and shared in one another. My son and I, we, we love to watch UFC together, and we just, we just armchair the living crap out of like the coach. No, do this, do this. But what they do, every time there's a break in a round, they will take you over there with a camera, and they will allow you to hear and listen in on the coaches talking to the fighters. And you know what they tell them every time without fail? They tell them and they scream at them and they say, this is where they're soft. This is where their weaknesses are. And they say, put your fist there. Every time, put your fist there. So Collector Church, where are we soft? Where our hearts are most divided. So whatever that might be for you as it pertains to this spiritual family, your faith, Satan will direct all of its engines against that very weak knee of preferences. The lower guard of ifs the jawbone of parasitic consumerism, the shins of spiritual apathy and laziness. This is what Satan wants for us to make the roads between us impassable. Is he winning, Collective Church? If he is or not, allow these next two words, few words in closing from Paul to bring exaltation and alertness to us. Verse 19. For who here is our joy or our crown? Excuse me, excuse me. For who here is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Paul ends this nakedness by a shocking question. Who is our hope? Who is our crown? Who is our joy? And where all of us should be going, wait, 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 wait. All Sunday school answers point to that should be Jesus. But Paul continues to surprise us and says, is it not you? Is it not you? Verse 20, indeed, it is you. It is you, church, you, family, you are our glory and our joy. Now, I don't know about you, but this should feel disruptive to say that people are your glory and your joy and your crown, your hope. To everything we've been taught about the source of all of those things, it just doesn't feel right. What Paul is saying is that the word glory means fame, which is then as a person receives when he is honored by another. So Paul is saying about his church, you are my good report. You are my my glory, my good achievement, church in Thessalonica. So if you're new to the church, you really don't understand the relationship between a shepherd and a sheep. This verse is sort of the holy grail, which reveals what should be. Paul says it for all pastors, that I've lived for you to know Jesus. I've lived for you to love Jesus wholeheartedly, to experience the beauty of Jesus increasing in your life as you decrease. And when Jesus comes back, your lives are going to be my joy and my crown. Please, church, see how this applies to us. Lorenzo is saying, Ryan is saying, Isaac, wherever he is, is saying, Casey is saying, that what every eternal honor is ascribed to us has its source in collective church's heart. It is Paul's honor to introduce you to the Lord, to introduce that church to the Lord Jesus that is coming. And it is ours as pastors of collective church to hold you close to Jesus at his coming and say, see them, Lord, see them. See how they love you. See how they made much of you. See how their faith has brought you to a greater increase as they've decreased. 
Collective Church, we are so bound to you and your discipleship. It has eternal effects. This is not a pet project. Charles Spurgeon, 1800s preacher, says it with gut-wrenching truth. This is, you want to know what a pastor is aspiring to be or just the blatant truth of it? This is it. He goes, I live by your spiritual joy. I suffocate on your spiritual indifference and I choke to death on your spiritual misery. I am tied to you. I am tied to you. Again, please, church, though, in closing, do not think that is solely a pastor's place at the coming of Christ. This is not just for that relationship dynamic. Our reputation and reward in eternity, your reputation and reward in eternity will be based in part in what you did for Christ and his bride. Is that sinking in? So I ask on the day that Jesus returns, what do you want to present to him with your life? We need to take this to the carpets today. Church, I'm unapologetically committed to the kingdom of Jesus coming in Los Angeles. Church, don't you want to be used by God in unexplainable ways? Collective church, don't you want to see the lost be found and you were a vessel? Don't you want to see that the spirit of God restores and reconciles broken relationships and you were part of that? I mean, we say it all the time, but don't we want to be part of a a revival of magnificent proportions and you were a matchstick? It does not come from a divided heart. Collector Church, this is why the Fritz family is coming. We are giving up our home and our careers and our comforts because we are all in for you and with you. Church, the gospels are clear. When Jesus returns, he is expecting that we have made right and wholehearted investments and they will be judged. So I'm going to ask in closing, on the day when Jesus returns, what do you want to present to him with your life?